This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1879, the North American Review published excerpts from a diary of someone who witnessed many important events in Washington, D.C., and met many important people, including President Lincoln, in the winter of secession, 1860-1861. The diarist was anonymous, known simply as a public man. Who was the public man? This has been called by some the greatest mystery in American historical writing. Our guest today thinks he knows the answer. His name is Daniel W. Crofts. He has written A Secession Crisis Enigma, and we'll talk with him today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a gloriously sunny and pleasant afternoon, May 2011, a Friday afternoon as always for Civil War Talk Radio. It's a Friday after the end of the semester here on the campus of East Carolina University, where I'm speaking uh, just for myself, not for the university, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, I'm certain. Uh, I'm still here, but most of the faculty, most of the students are gone. Summer classes are underway, but they are small in number, and they're over by noon. Uh, so it's, it's quiet, it's calm, it's very pleasant to be here. It's a chance to get other kinds of work done, uh, vast piles of administrative trivia that have grown up around uh, the desk recently have to be taken care of. Other things have to be done. Cars have to be repaired. Um, uh, if you're thinking this week of donating to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which is always welcome, uh, you can do that uh, through PayPal uh, to civilwartr at aol.com. You can find a button for that on the implementsofwar.org website, Implements of War, all one word, uh, a very interesting site maintained by Mark Gaffney for 
your benefit and mine, those of us who listen to or talk on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, find out what shows are coming up and other things. And if you donate, I'll be happy to send you a copy of uh, All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves, if you prefer. And as I say each week, it's not tax deductible. I can do what I want with the money. I usually buy books. Uh, and as always, our library here at uh, East Carolina is suffering the same budget cuts as everybody else's. And I find myself more and more uh, asking them to buy a book that they really ought to have bought already or being told they can't buy it and I have to go buy it myself. But this week I'll be using it to get new boots for the front axles of the 2003 Volkswagen Passat. So uh, uh, that's where your, your donation would go. Feel free to keep it and fix your own car if you prefer. Um, well, the... Uh, so many interesting things about this week's book that rather than uh, discuss uh, any other housekeeping items, we'll get right into it, except to say that we do have no show next week for Memorial Day, uh, the Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we can all uh, think about those who participated in the Civil War. A few weeks ago was Confederate Memorial Day, according to the calendar here on campus, and I uh, have to admit I did not particularly go out of my way uh, to do anything different on that day. It seems to me one Memorial Day ought to be enough, and those who fought for the country uh, should be memorialized perhaps uh, uh, ahead of those who fought against it, but uh, that would open a whole can of worms. It was one of the issues I remember disagreeing uh, with uh, in discussion with, with my my mentor, the uh, uh, late, uh, much-missed David Donald. Uh, as a graduate student, it was my obligation to agree with everything he said, uh, at least publicly, but we did disagree about whether Confederate Harvard students should be memorialized in, in Memorial Hall on campus. And he thought it, it was the time had come, and I, I still don't. Um, so uh, there was room to disagree, and there was room to get the Harvard reference in early in today's show, so we can move on from that. Uh, no show next week for Memorial Day. On June 3rd, Gregory Irwin joins us to talk about all kinds of interesting uh, things in his Civil War writing career. Uh, he's written about other things as well, but uh, we'll certainly start out talking about uh, George Custer and his Civil War uh, successes in contrast to his later mishaps out on the plains. On June 10th, uh, three weeks away, we'll have Robert Hunt talking about the Army of the Ohio, later called the Army of the Cumberland, and how its veterans remembered the war. And our last show for the season will be June 17th. James Martin will be with us. So interesting shows. We've already got some guests lined up for the fall that I know you'll be uh, eager to hear uh, from and hear about. So uh, stay tuned for that. We'll be back uh, on the air live in uh, late August or early September, but we've still got a few shows this year, so we'll we'll stick with those. Today, uh, uh, some of you will remember a few weeks ago we talked uh, with Jamie Malinowski, who uh, does the Civil War blog for the New York Times, the uh, uh, opinionator uh, blog in which he has was keeping up with the events of 150 years ago, so describing events of the secession winter over this past winter, as though they were happening now. And one of his articles received a very 
long and thoughtful critique from a professor at the College of New Jersey, uh, Daniel W. Crofts. And uh, not too many weeks later, uh, Professor Croft's own work began to appear in the blog, a sign of how modern technology can be used to, uh, the, the wiki principle can be used to, to, to bring new people into a conversation much more quickly than ever could, done bef- could have been done before. And, uh, and not entirely coincidentally, uh, Professor Croft joins us today to talk about his book, uh, the title of which is A Secession Crisis Enigma. That's not all we'll talk about, by the way. Uh, that was just the hook to get us started, uh, listeners. You want to find out who, who the public man was, but we'll have a lot to say about the secession winter today. Um, uh, Professor Crofts, are you there? Yes, um, I'm here, and I'm looking forward to talking with you. Well, well, thank you. Uh, we have not met officially. We, we both know my uh, colleague, Chuck Calhoun, so we've, mm-hmm. we have a mutual friend. But uh, if, if you don't mind going by first names, please call me Jerry. Yes, Jerry, that's, that's just right, and you call me Dan. Wonderful. Um, well, Dan, I'm glad you could be on the show. I really enjoyed this book, which I refrained from reading the subtitle of in the introduction, because uh, the subtitle of the book tells us who you think the public man was and gives away the whole, uh, the whole mystery. Um, this is not how Agatha Christie would have approached this. That's true. Uh, but uh, let's talk a bit about uh, the mystery of the public man. Nobody knew who this was in 1879, and a lot of people tried to solve it. Uh, how, how does one go about trying to solve a mystery like this? Well, you you rely on kind of common sense, uh, uh, what kind of associations and uh, uh, what sort of fingerprints seem to be uh, indicated by the document, and uh, most times uh, this thing will work. Um, the reason uh, to anticipate that it doesn't work for this one is because there was no diarist. That is, it's a pretend diary. It's, a, uh, it's actually a memoir, uh, but it was presented to the public in the North American Review in 1879 as a diary, and it's such a, uh, a uh, remarkably uh, kind of successful uh, fiction uh, that for many decades uh, the best people in the business were taken in by it. The, uh, the giants of the uh, early and mid-20th century, David Potter, uh, Roy Nichols, uh, Alan Nevins, uh, they were very much convinced that it was on the level and they used it as a source for their books. And those three knew as much about secession as probably anybody who's ever lived. So it it had to be a very uh, clever job. So it, it reads like a diary, but you're saying it was not written in 1860. It was written closer to 1879 when it actually appeared. Yeah, my my strong suspicion is it was written probably within the months before it appeared in print. So it's not actually a diary at all, but a, a, a secondary piece. Um, when when people you you quoted some of the big names of American history uh, like, like David Potter, or Alan Nevins, people who believed that this was uh, a diary and this quoted it as a primary source. Um, one reason they they did so, I imagine, is because the stories are so good uh, that, that the diarist tells, uh, of which my favorite is certainly uh, Douglas holding Lincoln's hat uh, at the inaugural address. Mm-hmm. 
What yeah. about Go let's ahead. talk about that story for a minute. I'm, yeah. I'm, what do you think of that? Did that happen? I give it a pretty high probability. Um, it's fascinating to see that uh, your former uh, graduate mentor, David Donald, uh, continued to believe it, even though he cautioned elsewhere that we're not supposed to use the diary. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin uses it. Um, but the reason I would tend to say it's okay is because um, my research on this thing uh, exposes this fiction of a diarist who never existed, but at the same time finds that the reason the diary is so plausible is because it's so chock full of uh, really for sure good inside information, uh, a fair amount of which uh, wasn't validated until after uh, it appeared in print. Uh, stuff came to light in the 1880s that uh, that showed that the stuff in the diary was um, was was on the level. Uh, so, so, so it's a true account in many ways, even though it, it's presented in a fictional in a fictitious form. Well, certainly it was not what it pretended to be. It was not a diary. There was no diarist. Uh, I can assure you of that. But. The elements, uh, if you might say the the material out of which the thing was constructed, uh, is full of really uh, closely held inside information uh, that was not really part of the public realm in 79 and has been corroborated since. And uh, one of the reasons that the giants thought so highly of this thing is because unless you've really researched carefully this period and read a lot of the manuscript collections, uh, you don't fully appreciate just how persuasive this diary is. Uh, you know, this guy, he seems to have been a fly on the wall uh, in uh, rooms where the most important people around were having confidential conversations. Well, the diary is full of conversations with, with William Seward, with several of them, with Lincoln, uh, with, with Stephen Douglas. He, he's, he does seem to know everybody in Washington. And the the... The creator of the fictitious diary then must have known some or all of these people too to do this. The creator of the fictitious diary, um, which we'll get to, uh, was a, a very talented uh, newspaper reporter and a guy who had a, uh, a marvelous memory. Uh, but he himself couldn't have been party directly to most of these conversations. However, his best friend. Uh, lived next door to Seward, and Seward, during the secession winter, uh, used this friend's home as a secret meeting place uh, where he could confer with people that he didn't want to be seen conferring with in public. And uh, uh, the diary, uh, or the um, purported diary, is something of a team effort. Um, The friend who lived next door to Seward clearly had much to do with it, and uh, the only other major book on this subject, uh, that friend was identified as the diarist, but uh, that friend didn't have the writing skill to pull it off. Um, his well, let's go ahead and name friend. that friend. We're, we'll okay. we'll the, expose one yeah. layer of the onion yeah. here. No need to uh, conceal uh, here. The, the friend who lived next door to Seward is Sam Ward, who uh, was on his way toward a rather spectacular career after the war, the king of the lobby, uh, the person that you would want to get to uh, in Washington if you had something that uh, you somehow needed to uh, get the approval of Congress for. 
a very nice book by a lady named Kathy Jacob just came out a year ago with Johns Hopkins, uh, a biography of Sam Ward, a uh, very nice coincidence that that one comes out at the, about the same time as my book. Did she comment on the public man? I have not read her, her book. Yes, she she is basically um, comfortable with, with my identification of Hurlbert, uh, who we'll get to, as the uh, diarist. And she shares my view that Ward could not have done this, and she knows Ward better than anybody else. Now, an early writer, uh, Frank Malloy Anderson, uh, back the early 20th century, did think that it was uh, that Ward was the the public man, and with good reason, because there are elements in this diary that point toward Ward, and this proximity to Seward. Um, uh, certainly made him an interesting candidate uh, for Frank Malloy Anderson. Um, but um, uh, the thing falls apart once you get uh, to matters of writing style. Um, um, the guy who actually did it was a marvelous, uh, uh, over-the-top writer, and Ward was a an adequate but uh, nowhere near as uh, talented a writer as the person who did the diary. One of uh, we don't have a huge amount of scholarship pouring out of the halls of East Carolina University historically, uh, at least certainly before uh, Charles Calhoun here has uh, uh, turned that around for us in, in a big way. But uh, Roy Locken uh, of ECU wrote a article in I think 1953, and he said it was not Ward. He was he was one who who, who agrees with you uh, that it was not him. But yes, I, I refer to his very interesting article um, at a couple of points in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he suspected that Frank Malloy Anderson uh, hadn't really uh, successfully uh, nailed this issue, uh, and he uh, threw out the very uh, sensible idea that the identifications that pointed toward Ward could just as easily point toward a number of people in Ward's circle. Uh, but uh, to make a long story short, look and didn't know enough about the uh, uh, the other possible people or about the whole secession period to kind of. He was a colonialist, up. actually. Yeah, yeah. It, this wasn't his. This was a uh, project he did in grad school, and mm-hmm. and a very nice piece of work. Um, um, and um, he wasn't the only one, but he was one of the first to kind of suspect that, uh, even though Anderson had pointed to uh, difficulties in trying to take this diary of a public man at face value, that his identification of Ward uh, left something to be desired, and that the issue was still up in the air. So we've got, we're halfway there uh, mm-hmm. toward solving this. Uh, we've got time now to take a short break, which we'll do. We'll come back in just a moment with more with Dan Crofts and the enigma of the Diary of a Public Man, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you are dealing with chronic illness or a disability, at times you can feel lost with nowhere to turn. 
doesn't have to be this way at all. You can become an active participant with your doctor in the healing process. Tune in to A Healthy Way to Be Sick with host Mark Lerner. Mark has developed techniques to make your healing a partnership. Each weekly show will cover four main topics and how you can take steps and hear from experts that know the value of patient participation. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Daniel W. Crofts, He's the author of A Secession Crisis Enigma, William Henry Hurlbert, and The Diary of a Public Man. We've talked in the first segment about the diary, which alert listeners will recall last week was assigned as homework. Uh, and Mark Gaffney found a link to the uh, North American Review uh, and put that on uh, on the, the website. So I'm counting on all of you to have actually read the diary excerpts themselves. But if not, uh, it's enough to know for now that, that it was an insider's view of Washington just before the Civil War broke out. Uh, the secession winter, the, the diarist talked of meeting with Seward, meeting with Lincoln, uh, meeting with representatives from the South, meeting all kinds of important people and, and conveying very uh, vividly the, the sense of contingency and, and, and uh, wonderment as to what was going to happen next. Uh, would there be a war? Would there not be a war? Uh, would there be a compromise, as there always had been in the past? Uh, a, a really wonderful document that was used by many historians as a primary source over the years. Uh, but, Dan, you've told us that it's not a diary at all. It was concocted in 1879 when it was published. Uh, but it had to be by someone who knew a lot, a, a vast amount of material that was not known to the public. Uh, Sam Ward was such a person. He, he lived in Washington next to Seward. But he didn't write the diary either. So, so who did write the diary? Well, the diary was written by William Henry Hurlbert, who, among other things, was Sam Ward's best friend. During the secession winter, Hurlbert is up in New York City, um, and for the several years before that, as a young prodigy, he'd been the editorial writer uh, for Henry J. Raymond's New York Times. So he was somebody whose uh, uh, talent with the pen was already recognized, and he had a good ear to the ground, and uh, he knew probably a good deal uh, about what was going on in uh, the secession winter. Uh, he was friends with uh, S.L.M. Barlow, who uh, was writing letters to uh, everybody from Buchanan to Judah Benjamin and so on. And uh, Ward and Barlow and Hurlbert were all something of a team. So at the time, Hurlbert knew a lot, and I think he probably uh, uh, maybe picked up some more uh, from Sam Ward uh, when he got to the point of wanting to try his concocted diary. So, so he and Ward could put this together. How did they get it published? They got it published. Um, the North American Review was a big deal at the time. A couple of years before, a fellow named Alan Thorndike Rice, uh, a well-to-do uh, young guy, uh, had uh, turned the North American Review into the most popular magazine around with articles on public affairs, uh, history, uh, 
it was the magazine you'd like to read, uh, and it had a big circulation. And uh, in four consecutive issues in 1879 comes out this uh, this diary of a public man, uh, in which the editor uh, chooses to conceal the identity of the author, um, but um, through a certain amount of hocus pocus, uh, announces that. You know, this is something that should see the light of day. It sheds light on the uh, on the uh, ordeal that the country went through about two decades before. Um, and uh, while he was doing this, um, in the context of publishing um, um, one of the last installments, uh, he also uh, published a bunch of letters that were without doubt real. Uh, letters that uh, Edwin Stanton had written to Buchanan in uh, uh, March and April, May, 1861. And so there was also a kind of interesting uh, effort here of what I would call authenticity by association. Uh, uh, By the time the final installment was produced, you had this, no doubt about it, real uh, collection of uh, important inside letters uh, being published uh, right up against... uh, the last installment of the Diary of the Public Man in the same magazine. So the the public certainly believes uh, this is the case. I guess there would be a reason to have it anonymous because some of the people being written about are still alive in 1879. Well, a few, but not many. Um, the Certainly the principals uh, are all dead. Uh, Lincoln, uh, Sumner, uh, Seward, Douglas, uh, uh, they're all, of course, gone. Um, well, I were, guess, yeah, because if they weren't, they would be able to say, "Hey, I never met that guy." That's right. That's right. So one of the reasons that Frank Malloy Anderson uh, became suspicious of the thing is, in part, that uh, it, it refers uh, almost exclusively, but not quite, to people who were no longer alive, and therefore could not call into question the, uh, um, you know, the aspects that. That don't really square. So um, it's it's a situation where where uh, I'm convinced the editor of the uh, North American Review, um, Alan Thorndike Rice, had to be in on what was going on. Um, but I think other than that, it was a very tightly held secret, and that's one of the reasons the secret held. That's an interesting historical thing to consider, the, the idea of holding a secret at all. You think of... Uh how long it took until uh, the identity of Deep Throat was revealed from uh, Watergate. Uh, most historical secrets do come out sooner or later. Uh, if, if two people know about it, then uh, someone's going to talk sooner or later. Yeah, it's harder to hold on to a thing like that these days. Um, I mean, Joe Klein in 1995 or so had this mm-hmm. anonymous novel, uh, which before too long uh, was outed. Um, but um, this one is the product of a remarkably talented person. Uh, almost any concocted diary is going to make some kind of mistake. It's going to uh, do something or refer to something that could not have been known at the time the diary was allegedly written. Uh, this document does a fantastic job of capturing a kind of you-are-there feeling for uh, what was going on in early 1861. It it doesn't in any way telegraph that it knows what's going to happen in the future. 
which is, is I think, a big part of its appeal. Of course. Uh, uh, one question that that occurred to me reading your analysis of this is that, as in any uh, mystery, you, you've got motive, uh, you've got opportunity. Uh, clearly, you have the opportunity here. Uh, you have the ability to do this. Um, the the intent uh, can be there, but but motive is a question. Why did these people? Why did did Hurlbert uh, and Ward want to work together to to make this? What was in it for them? Well, that's of course a great question, and it's one that always comes up when I give talks about the book. The the tendency is to is to look for something, you know, tangible. Who's going to benefit from this thing? Um, uh, did they do it to make money? Uh, well, they probably made some money, uh, assuming that maybe Hurlbert and Ward split uh, what they might have got from the magazine. But that that wasn't really an adequate motive for doing something like this. I mean, Hurlbert at the time edited a major newspaper in New York City. Uh, Ward. Uh, who did have a very kind of up-and-down financial career at the moment, was way up, um, and had just bought his illustrious sister, Julia Ward Howe, a nice house on Beacon Street in Boston. Uh, so they didn't really need the money. A possible motive is that um, this could have been designed as a way to help their friend, um, Thomas Bayard, who was an aspirant for the Democratic presidential nomination, uh, who carried with him the, uh, uh, you might say, the the albatross of not having been very quick to support the Union cause in Delaware, uh, even a couple of months after the war started. And the diary can be seen as a way of showing that uh, sensible, patriotic people uh, in uh, you know March 1861 didn't necessarily think going to war was a great idea. Um, but... I'm convinced, as I get to know this guy, that what's really driving him is the wish to establish a view of history. Uh, he wants to he wants to be a historian, but he's not a conventional historian like you and me. Uh, uh, instead, uh, he's going to kind of imagine a historical circumstance and plant himself right in the middle of it. And uh, I think he figured he'd get more bang for the buck if he could... Uh, put together a uh, uh, a plausible seeming diary, um, but basically it's an effort to kind of establish a point of view about the period leading up to the Civil War, uh, which is something that was very important to Hurlbert personally. Uh, unlike most folks at the time, he was somebody who was very torn uh, between North and South. His dad had been a, um, a minister uh, up in Massachusetts who had migrated to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And Hurlbert had grown up as a kind of sectional hybrid, but um, um, somebody who, as we get down toward the late 1850s, is much more aware than most other Americans uh, that this thing is about to head into deep trouble. Uh, there weren't very many people, either north or south, who understood uh, that a big train wreck was coming, and uh, Herbert was one of them. Um, he knew enough about the North and about the South, because he was both Northern and Southern, uh, to see that this thing wasn't going to end happily, uh, or at least there was a great danger that it wasn't going to end happily. So he was a, a huge advocate of 
of uh, compromise, accommodation, and he continued to regard through his entire life the outbreak of the war as a terrible tragedy, uh, something that sensible people could and should have averted. And uh, his diary ends uh, at the exact moment, March 15, when it appeared, according to the stuff in the newspapers the preceding couple of days, that Lincoln had decided to uh, voluntarily surrender Sumter uh, in an effort to kind of keep the peace. And and uh, there the diary ends. Almost as if, uh, you know, wishing to rewrite history. Yes. Uh, a wish fulfillment uh, moment. But I, that makes the, the diary particularly, I think, effective today uh, in the way that the, that the diarist, uh, or her Alberta, if we call him either way, uh, that, that he portrays North and South not, not taking each other seriously, or at least not, just not able to believe these people could be serious because their ideas are so far-fetched, so outrageous that, that, that the South could not surely actually want to secede over this when, when only a minority owned slaves to begin with. Uh, or, or conversely, surely the North is not actually going to go to war over something as abstract as union with people who don't want even want to be in it. Uh, neither side can believe the other is serious. Yeah. Um, Hurlbert uh, arrives at your graduate alma mater, Harvard, in 1845. He's regarded there as a Southerner, even though he'd actually spent longer in Philadelphia than South Carolina. But the, his dad had died, and he'd moved back to uh, South Carolina um, for the couple of years before he went up to Boston or to Cambridge. And uh, uh, his best friend in um, in college is none other than Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Higginson who uh, down the road a ways becomes a radical abolitionist and a um, uh, you know commander of a um, uh, a black regiment. Uh, writes an interesting book about it, and so. Uh, Hurlbert is, he's plugged in uh, all over the place. Um, as late as 1856, he is a Republican. Uh, he writes uh, letters to Charles Sumner saying how sad it is that uh, you've had to, uh, you know, suffer this uh, terrible ill treatment and uh, how you're a martyr for the cause and so on and so forth. But between 1856 and 1860, uh, Hurlbert uh, can see this uh, this just sort of uh, uh, uncontrollable outrage potentially building in the South over the potential that a Republican would be elected president. And so by 1860, uh, Hurlbert is a, um, a Stephen A. Douglas supporter. And that actually loses his job with the New York Times. He... Uh, um, the Times is a moderate Republican journal, uh, though interestingly, Hurlbert was deeply involved in a scheme to try to bring the Times into the Douglas Circle uh, for several months um, in late 59 and early 60. Uh, Hurlbert is the kind of key point person in trying to uh, turn the Times into a Douglas journal, but uh, Raymond wouldn't go there. And so he cares enough for his principles that he loses his job. And uh, here's this remarkably talented guy who already knows a great deal. He's been writing the editorials for the Times for the past three years plus, who's out of a job during the secession winter. And uh, I've got to believe that he had, a, you know, an ear to the ground and was learning a lot about what was going on 
Um, what else is he going to do? It's the biggest story that's ever happened in his lifetime, and uh, he didn't really have anywhere to uh, uh, direct his energies. So at that point, uh, of course, this is an era when newspapers are, are explicitly partisan. Uh, they're, they're, they are, as you say, a Douglas Journal or a Republican Journal. There's no uh, mistaking uh, any pretense at objectivity there. There's, uh, there's gradations. I mean, the, the New York Tribune, uh, Horace Greeley's paper, is an uh, uh, out-and-out ideological Republican paper. And the uh, New York Times is a much more sort of cautious, um, almost in some ways lukewarm Republican paper. Um, but you're right. Uh, it was a very, very rare paper that didn't have a pretty clear uh, partisan slant to it. So, uh, and, and again, uh, one might think of, of contemporary times where uh, uh, partisan passions run high, uh, people on each side question whether the other side could actually be serious with their far-fetched schemes as, as they may appear, and uh, news outlets appear to be favoring one side or the other. Uh, a lot of things that make this a contemporary story. Um, one question that I want to ask is, is about the form of the diary as, as you say, a way of telling uh, a true story, even though the diary did, did not exist in 1860. It was not actually a real diary at any time. Uh, you make the analogy to uh, Mary Chesnut's diary. Could you right. elaborate on that? Well, it turns out that Mary Chesnut, and you can also mention uh, the famous uh, correspondent for the London Times, uh, William Howard Russell, uh, both uh, at about this same period are conduct are constructing purported diaries uh, that weren't. Uh, uh, where in both instances, uh, uh, Howard's came out uh, only a couple of years after he had been touring in the United States uh, in 1861. Um, but Mary Chestnut's is uh, pretty much the same chronology as the Hurlbert uh, project. That is, uh, she kept working with these uh, these kind of uh, journals that she had kept during the Civil War and produced something very, very different uh, in its final form in the 1880s. That was for a long time thought of as a diary. Indeed, when I was younger, you know, you could buy a paperback book that said A Diary from Dixie uh, by Mary Chestnut. Now, since the early 80s, Van Woodward uh, got to the root of the matter and, and got the stuff out there and explained that, well, no, what we thought of as a diary wasn't uh, exactly a diary. He carefully chose a different title, Mary Chestnut Civil War, and pointed out that, no, this was not something that uh, was written, you know, in 1861 and 2 and 3, but that it has a lot of value. And I feel that much the same can be said uh, about the Hurlburt Project. Now, there are some differences. Um, you know, Chestnut is clearly present at the um, scenes that she's remembering and embellishing on uh, in the uh, uh, much larger and more, uh, you know, kind of carefully worked through version that finally took shape in the 1880s. Uh, Hurlbert, uh, somewhat more deceitfully, uh, is pretending to be a diarist who never existed and is, for the most part, dealing with stuff that he wouldn't have witnessed firsthand. So uh, there's some differences, but Broadly, I'd say there's also similarities. Um, on the whole, the bottom line, I would say, is that both are trying to tell the truth 
uh, albeit Herbert's truth, involves this ridiculous fiction uh, of there being a diarist who never existed. So they're they're useful and they're uh, very much useful in their own ways uh, and not to be discarded just because they're not exactly what they seem to be. What we'll do is take another short break now and come back again, talk more with Dan Crofts about William Henry Hurlbert and the Diary of a Public Man and the Secession Winter of 1860 and 61 when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Holistic healing has been around for over 5,000 years. The basic concept is that of treating the whole person and encouraging a healthy way of living in harmony with nature and the core self. Every week, take some time out for Holistic Healing Moment with host Elizabeth Ami. What is out there, and how does it help on the transformational path of healing body, mind, and spirit? No matter where you are on your path, there will be a topic that will speak just to you. Tune in to Holistic Healing Moment, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dan Crofts. We've been talking about his recent book, A Secession Crisis Enigma, William Henry Hurlbert and the Diary of a Public Man, in which we learn the identity of the long anonymous public man whose diary or so-called diary appeared in a magazine in 1879, uh, but not a diary at all, concocted for the magazine for publication at the time, yet based on uh, both things that Hurlbert observed himself in 1861 and things he learned from his good friend Sam Ward and from others. Uh, one of the stories uh, mentioned uh, back in our first segment is, is the famous one of Abraham Lincoln's inaugural address in which he didn't know what to do with his hat during the speech, and uh, Senator Douglas, his great rival, reaches out and takes it from him and holds it on his lap, uh, holds Lincoln's hat while he speaks. Uh, Dan, you mentioned that that story has, has been used by many famous historians, and uh, I've certainly quoted it and, and would be loath to give it up. It sounds authentic, uh, and it fortunately does have other uh, attribution. I think there's a Cincinnati newspaper that has a, a brief mention of it, uh, so it's conceivable that it happened even if the public man uh, never existed to see such a thing. In general, uh, uh, we ended our last segment with you comparing this to, to Mary Boykin Chesnut's famous uh, diary from Dixie, uh, or so-called diary, uh, an example of a historical figure talking about the past uh, in, a, in what seems to be a diary but really isn't. Uh, but in both cases, you suggest they really are finding ways to get at the truth. I think so. And um, I, I think that you handle it nicely in your uh, your Lincoln book, um, pointing out uh, that 
you know, Anderson made the telling point that why hadn't somebody written about this before? I mean, everybody was watching what was happening on the east front of the Capitol on March 4, 1861. Uh, why does this story uh, not emerge? You know, suddenly, as soon as the diary comes out, everybody remembers seeing Douglas uh, holding Lincoln's hat. Um, but then uh, we've got this article in the Cincinnati Commercial a week later, which in a somewhat uh, off-handed, jocular way, uh, attributes to an Ohio congressman uh, this story that uh, uh, Douglas uh, had uh, reached out and held Lincoln's hat because poor Lincoln didn't know where to put it and uh, had to get to the main business at hand of uh, delivering his inaugural address. And uh, Alan Nevins went so far as to publish an article in the... Um, uh, what you call it? Uh, the the American American something uh, saying that you know he did hold Lincoln's hat. Uh, uh, I'm sure Nevins had been somewhat uh, you know pulled up short when when Frank Malloy Anderson wrote the book saying that uh, that this diary is not to be trusted. And uh, uh, so at least for Nevins. Uh, pointing out that the Cincinnati newspaper a week later did uh, provide some corroboration, uh, uh, made it okay in his eyes, and made it good enough for David Donald, uh, mm -hmm. even though Donald knew perfectly well that, uh, at least from the stuff that he had uh, uh, noted at one point in, I think, in his Sumner biography or maybe in his Lincoln biography, you know, we're not supposed to use this, and 20 pages later, boing. There it uh, is. There it is. Well, it it, uh, it remains good enough to use. As Nevins uh, would would find out now, uh, the diary is is to be used, but just not as a diary. Uh, you've written about the the secession winter uh, elsewhere, um, and I want to talk briefly about that. Right. One of the one of the great things about the the diary is how it does convey the the uncertainty of the months before. Uh, before Fort Sumter and, and the war breaking out, and that that's something that again seems to be particularly appealing right now in the 150th anniversary uh, of that era. There's been a lot of talk about how how the the South came to the decision to secede and how how uncertain and and, and how uh, you know, halting and, and uh, 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 reluctant uh, to use your word was the process for many. Um, just what are your general thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the things that I've enjoyed about being involved with this uh, New York Times blog, Disunion, is how you can slice the thing into kind of daily segments. And uh, for a number of months there, uh, those of us writing for this uh, blog were, were able to kind of establish... Um, this mood of uncertainty, um, which um, is very hard to do. Um, I mean, hindsight here enables all of us to know that, uh, you know, a war did indeed break out, and we kind of take for granted that the war was going to break out, and so we look for the reasons that the war broke out, and we tend to assume that a two very, uh, you know, distinct entities, a north and a south, uh, were bound to collide with each other, but you go back and you look at what was actually happening at the time, and it's much more murky. Um, and trying to, you know, regain this appreciation for the uncertainty of the moment is, for my mind, one of the uh, 
uh, one of the really exciting things about doing history. Um, so, do you think there could have been any real chance at compromise in 1860 or 61? Well, I, I, I think in the end, agree with my uh, my friend, the um, the young scholar uh, Russell McClintock, uh, whose excellent book a few years ago called Lincoln and the Decision for War. Um, it's pretty parallel to uh, the book I wrote 20 years ago, Reluctant Confederates, but um, um, what McClintock does there is to uh, make very clear that, that Lincoln went as far as he could uh, in trying to uh, uh, keep a door open uh, towards some kind of peaceful settlement, but that in the end, uh, Lincoln came to the conclusion that the key element, which would be a change of mind down in the Deep South, uh, wasn't going to happen. And uh, absent that, uh, the policies that Douglas and Seward were earnestly advocating uh, and that the uh, fictitious public man was, uh, you know, cheering on, um, that is the idea of, of kind of um, delaying any kind of arm clash and trying to uh, uh, build bridges um, between moderate northerners and the uh, folks in the Upper South that had kept uh, the eight states of the Upper South uh, out of this uh, secession movement. Um, they, uh, you know, this this was a uh, a very uh, kind of finely balanced moment, but McClintock uh, argues, I think successfully, that uh, that Lincoln came around to realize that uh, we can wait and wait and wait, and the, uh, the lower south uh, isn't going to come back, uh, and therefore, if we're going to get them better sooner than later, or try to get them. Uh, but then, of course, the question is, how much did Lincoln understand about the calamitous effect that this would have on the Unionists in the upper south? And... Uh, you know, this is something I paid a lot of attention to. It was really the focus of my first book, uh, the Upper South Unionists and their efforts to try to uh, um, um, stay on the same page as the uh, Lincoln administration and the moderate Republicans in Washington. And it's, a, in many ways, a tragic story. Uh, these uh, Unionists in the Upper South knew uh, that if this thing uh, came to war, uh, that it would... Uh, probably displace them and this uh, anti-secession movement, which for uh, the previous several months had been strong enough to keep North Carolina and Virginia and Tennessee out of, out of the war. Um, and, of course, they also feared quite correctly that if it came to war, the war would be fought in their states. Uh, uh, and sure enough, uh, Virginia especially, uh, Tennessee, uh, and the Western Theater, this is where the heaviest fighting of the war takes place. There, there's, there seems to be a, a swinging of the pendulum historiographically toward uh, this view, toward a recognition of the Upper South's uh, uh, position. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at the shelf here, Edward Ayer's book, In the Presence of Mine Enemies, talk, where he writes about Stanton, Virginia, as a, uh, a stronghold of unionism, the, the, the Upper Shenandoah Valley is a stronghold of unionism until Fort Sumter, and then overnight uh, they all become uh, secessionists, just as overnight Douglas Democrats in the North all become uh, uh, unionists uh, when Fort Sumter is fired on. That, that, that catalyzes the whole country one way or another, uh, gets people off the fence. But had that not happened, uh, 
if they'd stayed on the fence, could the Upper South have been kept in the Union? Well, certainly the, the people who were, at least temporarily, in political control in the Upper South were desperate to preserve the peace and confident uh, that if the peace were preserved, that they could keep their states in the Union. Um, uh, and yet, as you say, with this enormous catalyst of the uh, of the fighting at Fort Sumter, and then most especially the proclamation for 75,000 troops on April mm-hmm. 15, then it becomes polarized. And uh, knowing that it becomes polarized, it's very hard to kind of get back from that and to kind of look at what was actually going on in February and March uh, when, when uh, these Unionists were... Um, uh, at least for the moment, um, successfully challenging secession uh, in, in uh, especially uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee. Those three states together have as many white people as the seven seceding states, and they have more of the uh, uh, of the material and the um, uh, industrial capability that you're going to need to fight a war. Um, if you keep them out of it, uh, this is not a four-year war. Uh, but with them in it, uh, and with this intense wave of nationalism uh, that sweeps through most of the white people uh, in the seceding states uh, after April 15, then you have a hellacious four-year war on your hands. Although it's hard to imagine a war at all against just the first seven states, because because if there is a war, the other four Confederate states are going to go out, and maybe some of the border states too. And that's that's the contingency. I mean, so, both yeah. the Upper South Unionists and the moderates in the North, especially Seward and Douglas, uh, who represent both the modern Republican and the uh, Northern Democratic uh, wing on this thing, their whole hope is that um, the people in the Deep South are going to have to reconsider. Uh, they've temporarily been swept away in a moment of. Um, panic or enthusiasm or uh, uh, just sort of uh, mindless overreaction, uh, they're going to come to their senses. Well, instead of coming to their senses, they're building an independent country. Hmm. Well, to to bring us back to uh, William Henry Hurlburt and his diary that portrays this time so dramatically, Mm -hmm. uh, what became of him after, after he wrote the diary? Well, at the time he wrote the diary... He is um, a person to be reckoned with. He is the editor of the New York World, which is the principal democratic newspaper, not just in New York City, but because it's in New York City, uh, in some respects, the principal democratic newspaper in the country. Uh, New York had already become kind of the, the media nerve center of the United States. Indeed, it was that way already in 1860. Um, and Hurlbert was a, uh, a respected person around town, um, one of the things I was fascinated to discover is that uh, he was directly and personally responsible for a scheme uh, to bring an Egyptian obelisk, uh, a single piece of stone that weighed 250 tons, uh, from Alexandria uh, to uh, New York Central Park. And he masterminded the thing, uh, persuaded uh, uh, the, the son of Cornelius Vanderbilt to pony up a hundred thousand bucks, which meant a little bit more in those days. And uh, uh, this whole thing was accomplished um, um, right at about the same time the diary was being published. Uh, 
so in the summer of 1879, Hurlburt is doing three things at once. He's editing a newspaper. He's getting his uh, so-called diary out there surreptitiously and putting in a couple of very interesting pieces in his newspaper, The New York World, that are part of my uh, chain of evidence that points to him uh, that we're kind of talking up the diary. And uh, he's, he's masterminding this scheme uh, to get an obelisk. Now, why get an obelisk? It has to do with his historical sensibilities. Uh, uh, in, in the days of the Roman Empire, lots of obelisks were brought from um, Egypt to Rome. Uh, more recently, obelisks had been brought to London and Paris. Uh, New York was the great city of North America to be able to stand on the same kind of level as, as uh, London and Paris. It should have an obelisk too. And it so if, if ever other people are going to loot uh, other cultures, we're going to do the same thing. That's right. Now, you we're couldn't gonna... do this today, uh, but you could do it then. They got That's the permission right. of the Egyptian government, and, uh, and the ship was rigged, and they had to... Uh, you know, work it out. It's a, it's an unusual kind of assignment, uh, a 250-ton chunk uh, for a transatlantic trip. Uh, they pulled it off without power machinery. Uh, it, it is an, an amazing story. Dan, I, as happens each week, we run out of time far too soon. There's much more to be said about this fascinating book uh, called A Secession Crisis Enigma, William Henry Hurlbert and the Diary of a Public Man by Daniel W. Crofts. Uh, listeners, you'll want to get a copy of this. And Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, Jerry, it's an honor uh, to be on Civil War Talk Radio, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Uh, and listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.